What makes Frontier Toyota so awesome? They make it so easy. They treat people right. They're straightforward. Frontier Toyota is also the proud recipient of Toyota's President's Cabinet Award, one of only 12 dealerships in the nation to win the award. It's our customers. Because at Frontier Toyota, it's about you! Come in or buy online at FrontierToyota.com. Frontier Toyota, Creekside Road in Valencia. Welcome to the Santa Clarita Valley Signal News Podcast. I'm your host, Aaron Bender. Packed episode this week as I talk with Santa Clarita Republican Congressman Mike Garcia about the removal of one of his colleagues. My conversation with L.A. County Deputy D.A. John Hatami on his battle with new D.A. George Gascon. And Signal reporter Emily Alvarenga has a coronavirus vaccination update. But first, Signal reporter Caleb Lunetta on this week's explosion at an industrial park on Rye Canyon Loop that quickly turned into a brush fire. Basically, like when you're in a newsroom every day, you hear a lot of chatter on the scanner. Like we have a police scanner like right next to our desk, right? Um, and so basically, you're hearing, you know, there's always a brush fire. There's always a medical emergency. And I'm promising people... 90% of the time, it's not a fire or it's not an explosion. We just imagined it. So we kind of operate on that assumption. But, you know, we're always listening. So, you know, we kind of like mark it down uh, on a piece of paper next to us. Um, and then we, we, we just keep on going with our day until about maybe about anywhere between like five to six minutes later, you'll hear the first on scene guys get there, you know, from fire department or whatever. Usually it's always UTL, unable to locate. But then all of a sudden, uh, you hear over the scanner just three victims. And all of a sudden, it becomes a very, very real thing because if you have the guys on scene saying that there's victims, that means this wasn't a, you know, this wasn't a false um, event. Uh, so basically what happened was Emily Alvarenga, who is usually my rock, she always is my rock, and on this instance, she was my rock, she, uh, she decided to anchor which means that, uh, you know, like she takes over writing the actual story and then I run out there. And when we got there, what we found was people running around on their cell phones. This hillside was just on fire and you saw these, uh, you know, firefighters running up there. Um, and this is right in an area where have you ever been, like taste of the town is something that a lot of people in Santa Clarita have gone to. Yeah. Um, and, you know, you're just drinking and it's fun and it's in this grass field and everything. If you're looking straight up from that field, you would just see this hillside on fire and helicopters swooping down over it to try to put out the blaze. It was, uh, it was very dramatic, uh, the whole thing. And uh, unfortunately, three people eventually got hurt. Uh, and then a fourth actually drove themselves to the hospital. But that was right around 4.45 p.m. that day. So one of the big question marks, I guess, of the day is what was this? What caused this explosion? And what we had heard was that it was a movie set. Everyone kept saying that it was a movie set. It first went out as a biochemical plant explosion, um, but which wouldn't make sense because you have this industrial park right there, right? But eventually we started hearing more and more and we had the fire department saying that it was a movie set. Um, and then eventually we got to the press conference and they're not answering questions about what they think it is. It's just a constant it's under investigation. It's under investigation. Yep. It's under yep. investigation. So, first rule to making journalists not curious to what it is is probably just to be like <laughs> <laughs> the moment. The moment you you commit to your uh, uh, we're not answering questions on that at this time is the moment that everyone is on their group threads just yeah. chatting away like what could it be? 
Um, but eventually we found out that it was some type of pyrotechnics um, mixing lamp of some kind that uh, was used uh, for movies. It, it, it's a storage facility. Not, not sure if it's used for movies, but it's, it's used for some type of entertainment purposes and it's pyrotechnics uh, lab. We don't know who was injured. Um, but yeah, so that was the update was that uh, arson investigation um, and explosive investigations from LASD and Los Angeles County Fire said that it was um, this pyrotechnic mixing facility. Another story you've covered a lot this week is the death of 17-year-old Valencia Vikings student, Pedro Roman. So Pedro uh, is, um, was, a, was a great kid. I mean, uh, anyone you talk to about him uh, just spoke so highly of him. Just uh, uh, last night at the vigil, essentially, it was uh, everyone said, you know, you never meet a, bad, a person that would say a bad word about Pedro. But anyway, um, in 2019, at the end of 2019, um, he was diagnosed with a form of leukemia. Um, and he's a fighter, uh, you know, in the weight room all the time at school, always standing up for his friends. So he took that same attitude um, to his battle against cancer. And so for a year, he... Uh, he uh, had chemotherapy, he went through rounds of chemotherapy, and it's during a pandemic, keep in mind. So this kid is not able, his family's not even able a lot of the time to come into the hospital to see him. So he is doing a lot of this on his own and a and, uh, uh, lot of community support though. There was, uh, his school was, was dedicating whole student sections of football games to him and everything. Uh, there was fundraisers, kids making bracelets. They had a blood drive for him. Uh, it was all, you know, uh, for Pedro Javi Roman, you know, that was like the hashtag um, and, uh, you know, number 21. Um, but eventually uh, he got this uh, CAR T cell therapy when uh, at the end of last year. Um, essentially what that is, is they, they uh, take the patient's blood uh, and they take T cells out of the blood and they alter the T cell to be able to fight these uh, cancer cells around the tumor, around the cancer. And that was successful. And he went into remission. And so, you know, there was a big blowout birthday party for him. He was still wearing his mask, you know, but like there was cars driving by and people showered him with gifts and uh, the kid was so happy. Um, and then, a uh, few weeks after that, uh, we learned that he uh, had relapsed. This cancer had relapsed, and he was in the emergency room. That then he was transferred to City of Hope, and the they discovered that the cancer had spread to his spine and brain. Um, and within uh, a few short days, we learned that uh, Pedro had uh, died. Uh, we found that out Monday. Uh, and the response from the community, there was, um, you know, thousands of people here in the SCV that were following Pedro's story and were very connected to it, uh, whether they knew him directly or they had participated in the fundraisers or blood drives. Um, and so uh, last night, uh, there was hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people that showed up to this vigil in Central Park in uh, honor of Pedro and uh, people got to say their uh, goodbyes to him. It's just kind of interesting how even during the pandemic, you know, we, we've seen stories like this before with high schoolers going through cancer, going through some sort of illness and the community rallies around them. But that's under normal circumstances here. Yeah. You know, during the pandemic, 
you've got a lot of families going through a lot of things, but it didn't stop the community from coming together. No, no, definitely not. And a very interesting thing about it was uh, Dominic Blackwell and Gracie Muehlberger's family, the uh, victims of the Saga School shooting, the two students that died, they actually donated uh, the glow sticks, the purple glow sticks that were used last night, 600 of them, and the T-shirts that read uh, Pedro Javi Roman on them. So that was uh, a point that was made um, last night that, uh, you know, I grew up here at the SCV and I know that a lot of kids, you know, like to, uh, you know, take their cut at the SCV and say what they will. Um, I think though that in terms of the community coming together, especially over the last, since November 14th, 2019 and everything that's happened since then, I think, uh, there's been a lot of community togetherness and even COVID can't even stop that uh, in that. And you have, you know, the Mulbergers and Blackwells uh, donating. You have these teenagers that were reaching out to the family regularly, like the 14, 15 year old kids, like texting the family, asking like what they needed. So it was, it was kind of incredible to see that not even a pandemic could keep a lot of the people in the SCV down. Caleb's contact info is in the show notes if you have a story idea or a comment. That's also where you can find the info for Signal reporter Emily Alvarenga, who reported this week on the new mass vaccination sites being set up by FEMA at Cal State LA and in Oakland. Just another one of, I think, the state and the federal government's efforts to kind of get vaccination up to where it should be. I think that they've had a little bit of difficulties in that, in not only, you know, having enough people to vaccinate, but, you know, having enough vaccines to go around. And I think that, you know, any, any help they can get, they're trying to utilize. What's the feeling you get? You've been covering uh, COVID-19 stories here in Santa Clarita Valley for a year now. Uh, what's the feeling you get about how things are going here in the 661 when it comes to coronavirus? Local efforts have always been strong. The city has really been behind whatever they can do to help residents. I think that's really shown through the past year. Um, the community as well has really rallied around itself, kind of, you know, anyone and everyone's all hands on deck to help out where and when they can. Um, I think that even, you know, LA County as a whole, I think it's been a little bit frustrating for a lot of residents just because of, you know, we're wrapped up in a 10 million population county, which, you know, a lot of residents and, you know, even myself sometimes feel like, you know, we shouldn't necessarily be kind of subject to the same kind of restrictions that maybe some other people who live in a different situation or, you know, other areas of the county might, but, um, I think that overall, a lot of people surprisingly have kind of just rallied around and supported one another to kind of get through it all. Yeah, I remember talking with Tammy last week, the idea that Santa Clarita is uh, considering creating its own health department like Pasadena and Long Beach just for that reason. Is, or just this island in L.A. County. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, you can just look at Long Beach's vaccination efforts. Everyone, um, the County Board of Supervisors talked about it last week at their meeting and they were like, everyone wants to be Long Beach. Everyone wants kind of this dedicated, you know, all hands on deck mentality. And if Santa Clarita is able to make that happen, it really does 
go to show that I think that it could be very successful, especially because we kind of go by our own rules when it comes to that kind of thing. We do have our own city council. We do have our own kind of bubble that a lot of Santa Caritans really see the Valley as. So it would definitely be helpful. And of course, we're talking on the heels of one of the worst days for COVID deaths, 19 people in just one day earlier this week. Now, I want to stop you when you say that because it's not necessarily 19 in a day. Ah. Public health does this thing where <laughs> um, I think it's not its not their fault. They're going through a lot. Like I mentioned already, 10 million people. Wow. You know, can you imagine having to go through that much data with, I think they're testing more than a million daily, something along those lines. I don't know specifically, don't quote me on that, but just the amount of data they're getting. So for example, when a death is reported by Henry Mayo, that is either the same day or the following day. But that takes like, I would say at least three to five days to show up on the public health death toll. So the county site lags when it reports these things. And I think that they're playing catch up from this surge that we had. So really their, their death count may be off by 10 to 15. I mean, Henry Mayo's reporting 10 deaths a week. So those 10 deaths that were reported last week, we're not sure if they're in their death count yet or not. And then uh, one of your bylines this week uh, also was very cool. A 92-year-old mm -hmm. COVID-19 survivor got the vaccination. Yeah, I wrote his story back in May, the first time of last year, when he beat COVID. It was an awesome story to hear from him. You know, he really just kind of pulled through it. His daughter was all hands on deck. She's a great, great lady who's, you know, kind of been there every step of the way. And so then when she reached out to me and told me that he was getting his vaccine, it was, you know, just a no brainer to keep following his story. We transition now to LA County Deputy DA John Hatami, who several weeks ago spoke out against new DA George Gascon's directives to end gang and other sentencing enhancements, including three strikes. The deputy DA's union sued to try to stop those directives. And this week, Hatami says an L.A. County Superior Court judge heard arguments from the union and Gascon's attorneys. There was a court hearing a few days ago. Basically, the Association of Deputy District Attorneys um, filed um, a lawsuit asking for an injunction um, against uh, Gascon's directives. Um, he issued a series of directives uh, on the day he took office, uh, December 7th, and they've now filed a lawsuit uh, asking for an injunction. Basically, the directives that um, the union is um, uh, seeking to get an injunction on is eliminating three strikes allegation, both on current cases and on future cases, eliminating the special circumstance allegation, including uh, child torture and intentional murder, um, hate crime murders, uh, police uh, murders, uh, rape murders on every case, eliminating the firearms enhancement allegation, eliminating the gang enhancement allegation, and eliminating certain sentencing enhancements uh, on cases. And so there was a court hearing. Um, on one side, it was the attorneys for the uh, deputy district attorneys union. And on the other side was the attorneys for uh, the DA, George Gascon. Um, one of the DA's, um, I guess, uh, arguments is, is he won the election. So because he won the election, basically he's saying he can do whatever he wants. Um, 
our side, or at least uh, even me, what I'm saying is just because you won an election doesn't mean that that Trump's following the law. You still have to follow the law if you won an election. Um, the DA is not above the law. Nobody is. And so um, he's not a king. He's not a dictator. And he, he does have to follow the law. Um, I think another uh, comeback and um, uh, a good statement is if he's so concerned with the voters and he believes, you know, these millions of voters voted for him. Well, millions of voters voted for three strikes. Um, the judge even said more voters voted for three strikes than they did for Gascon. Uh, millions of voters voted for the death penalty, both in 2012 and in 2016. Um, millions of voters voted for special circumstances. Um, the last time in 2000, uh, over 5 million people voted to uh, expand special circumstances. Uh, and, you know, millions of people voted uh, no on zero bail just a few months ago. And so I think that was one thing. Another argument is, is blanket policy. So he has a blanket policy that his directives apply to every case. And so if you have a car theft, or let's say you have a child torture murder case, the policy applies to both equally. Um, and so he doesn't look at cases on a fact by fact uh, analysis, which you really are supposed to. Um, it's always better in criminal law, in dependency, in most cases, to look at cases on a case by case basis. Um, it not only helps you know, the public, it also helps the defendant. Um, because that you really want to look at the facts of each case and then make a decision uh, applying to discretion regarding the facts of those specific cases. And so I think that, you know, that um, is another issue that at least the judge seemed to uh, have some questions about. Um, and I think part of it is most prosecutors deal with laws and facts. And I think, you know, George Gascon, he's, he's never tried a case. He's never really been in court and said, you know, George Gascon for the people. And so I think that he somehow believes that his beliefs or his opinions, which may be, you know, important to him, obviously they probably are. Um, but for most prosecutors, we, we follow the law um, and you have to look at the evidence and the facts in the case. And he seems like he doesn't want to do that. How common is the practice uh, an incoming DA will on the first day issue directives one way or the other, whether you agree with them or otherwise, how common is that practice to basically come in and say, okay, this is, these, these are the, the ground rules now that I'm here? It's really uncommon. Um, and, you know, so I think he did it because he, he's involved, he, he's, a, he's a politician. And so he's trying to make headlines. He's trying to get media attention. You know, if you look on his Twitter, he said, you know, I'm trying to make a splash. Um, the problem is, is that you're dealing with millions of people in L.A. County, over 10 million people. Um, you're dealing with the biggest district attorney's office in the world. We have almost a thousand uh, deputy DAs. And, you know, we have a large penal code that has a lot of rules and laws in there. And so to come in on day one, when you've never tried a case, when you've never appeared in court as, as a prosecutor, and to make you know, hundreds of changes. Um, I mean, one of the changes he said it was there was no uh, hate crimes allegation. So basically, he just got rid of hate crimes in Cal in Los Angeles. That was uh, it, it was it was shocking. Um, he got rid of elder abuse allegations. Uh, he basically said you couldn't charge great bodily injury on child abuse cases. Um, you know, things that he's he, you know a week later he changed. 
Um, um, but th- this is the problem is he's made decisions in haste. Um, he's made decisions not based upon his knowledge of being a prosecutor, but just to, I, I think, to get headlines. And it, it, it's caused a lot of problems. Um, um, you, you, I think if you run for and you win the DA's office in Los Angeles, you need to be ready on day one to be the DA. Um, this isn't practice um, because you're dealing with people's lives. You're also dealing with the freedoms uh, of defendants and suspects. And so if you're not ready on day one, um, it, it, it's, 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 it's troubling. And especially if you're a prosecutor. And so I've never seen that many changes um, in, in one day. Um, I mean, other changes, he said, you know, no prosecutors can go to parole hearings. I mean, just yesterday, um, a double murderer, a person who killed two people um, who had been denied parole uh, for, for at least a few times, um, you know, was granted parole and there wasn't a, a deputy district attorney there. Um, to represent the people. And so these are really big changes that, um, you know, these things have been around for years. We are the only office in California that doesn't appear at parole board hearings as, as a district attorney. So, I, I mean, it's really unusual. And, and not to say that reforms are important. They are. And I do think we need them. Um, I think that um, times, things change. Um, and I think there has to be changes within within uh, the justice system um, to reflect those those the changing times. I think that mental health issues, um, I think addiction issues, these are important issues that affect a lot of people. Um, I don't think anybody benefits by putting people who are addicted to painkillers or drugs in jail or prison. Um, I, I think that it only hurts individuals. I have friends who have been addicted, especially to painkillers, police officers. And going to prison or jail is not going to help them. Um, and it won't help society either. Mental health is the same thing. That's not going to help anybody. But, but changes need to be made um, carefully. They also need to be made um, with consideration to the protection of the public. They also need to be made um, with consideration for victims and victims' rights. Um, and, and those things aren't, aren't happening. Talk to me about the mechanics of your being the face of the fight against these directives. Is it something where the union gets together, uh, the, the, the union board, and says, okay, we have a problem with this, let's find a face for it? Or does John Hatami go to the union board and say, I really don't like this, uh, I want to put it to a vote, do we fight this? And if so, I want to be the face of it. And I think that's a great question and um it does assume that we're a little more organized maybe <laughs> and then uh um we really are um i will tell you this the deputy district attorneys um many times we're not united on anything um you know we have different uh i'm a democrat but i'm also pretty conservative we have democrats we have republicans we have conservatives we have liberals um and so um, they're not, they, they have different opinions on a lot of different things. Um, I can tell you this, we're not united on a lot of stuff, but we're definitely united on this situation. Um, the majority, probably 98 or 99% of the people are, are united, uh, uh, against the policies of George Gascon. But I can tell you this, um, 
I don't think there was a concerted effort to say who was going to come forward and 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 fight for victims and fight for the deputy district attorneys. But um, I think that for me, um, the fact that I am a pretty well-known prosecutor in Los Angeles, probably the most well-known in the office or close to that, um, I think that gives that puts a responsibility on me. Um, I think also because of the cases I handle, um, I was very concerned that something bad would happen to a child or, or a vulnerable person regarding these policies. And, you know, I, I talked to my wife, um, uh, I prayed about it. Uh, I'm religious, but people don't have to be, that's okay too. Um, uh, you know, I thought, am I going to lose my job? You know, can we pay for our mortgage? You know, uh, you know, normal things that people think about when they're going to go against their, their boss. And I think I decided that I was going to do the right thing. And if, if something happened to me, it happened to me. Um, I talked to um, Michelle Hennessy, who's the president of our union. I talked to Eric Sadal, who's the vice president. Um, I talked to other people. But I don't know if it was a really a concerted effort that I said, hey, I'm going to do this. Or someone said, hey, we need you to do this. I think I just did it. Um, and, uh, um, it just, you know, kind of kept going, you know, and, but I think it was part of just being me. Um, but also I think it was my responsibility just because of where I am in the office. And then I'm just, just the type of person I am. Um, uh, I think that's kind of what happened, but you know, now that it's moved forward, we all do talk, we communicate. Uh, I, I, I talk to a lot of the deputy district attorneys. I try to find out what's, what, what issues are important to them um, and whatnot. So we're a little more we're a little more organized now. But I think at the beginning <laughs> of this, it was such a shock. I consider myself a pretty you know educated person when it comes to criminal law. Um, I had no idea th this is what George Gascon was going to do. I, I, I didn't. I mean, I, I assumed he was against the death penalty. Okay, I respect that. Um, but I had no idea his his directives were going to drastically affect my child torture and murder cases. I had no idea that they were going to affect these major, you know, murderers. Like I, I, I just no. he never said it. I, I just wouldn't have believed it. There was no way I would think that something like that was going to happen. Um, and so uh, I think it, it, it knocked a lot of people down. We didn't realize that that was going to happen. What kind of backlash have you gotten personally and you already mentioned that there's concern that there may be some backlash at work. There may be some retribution from the top down, uh, some concern over job security. What's life been like for you since you came out uh, against these directives? It was really tough at first. It's been a little bit better now, I guess I could say. Um, at first, um, there was a lot of intimidation. Um, they would send people to some of my hearings. Uh, they were getting some transcripts in some of my cases. Um, there was, you know, intimidating things mentioned on Twitter or social media. Uh, and then the, the DA came out through a spokesperson on television and said I was delusional and said I was unfit to practice law. And so that's when things got, started getting kind of bad. Um, and, you know, there was um, an effort to, they created a form. I, I called it the snitch form. Um, to to report on DAs if they weren't following uh, the DA's directives. Um, 
But I think once I came forward, um, things started changing. You know, I, I was so scared to come forward. Like it was really emotional. And, and I mean, I was actually crying a little bit. Uh, I was, it was just emotional. But I think maybe that was, uh, not only was it a good thing I mean, for the community, I think it may have been a good thing for me uh, because I think it may have um, shocked the DA to the point where a lot of public um, support got behind me and got behind the DAs. And so I think now he's, he's not able maybe to do the things he was going to do to me. Because uh, he mentioned that he was going to discipline me. He said in that, that, thing, that television interview that, you know, uh, I have to listen to the DA. And if I don't, I'm going to get disciplined. But nothing's happened. Um, but it's also odd because he hasn't come and talked to me, uh, hasn't apologized, hasn't asked me about my cases, uh, hasn't, uh, you know, talked to me about the facts of my cases. So nothing like that. Um, there's a lot of rumors that he's monitoring my, my uh, office email. And then my, you know, office, you know, cell phone. I don't know if that's true. Um, it may be more paranoia. I do think he operates. I think he tries to intimidate people. I think he does little things and says little things to make people scared, to keep people off uh, their game, uh, to keep to keep people thinking. Um, but uh, it seems to be that, that at least for me, um, things have been a little bit better as far as. Um, I don't feel like someone's going to come in my office and take all my stuff and kick me out. Uh, and I did for about a month. I felt that way. I was I was really concerned. But, you know, you never know. Maybe all of a sudden tomorrow he changes his mind and and, and does something. I think he operates on the media. And so the media right now um, is sort of, I think, in my view, protecting me. Uh, and so um, and it's amazing. The media now makes change, which is, you know, there's so much lack of transparency, especially with the government. Um, and the media is there to actually monitor things. So it's, it's, it's just, um, the media is very important. Um, at least I think it is, um, because it seems to be that they are now kind of the, the, the individuals watching to make sure things, you know, if something um, unfair is happening, they kind of come out there and, and they make sure they even things up a little bit. We go back to 2019, you came forward, uh, also a very emotional experience talking about your own childhood abuse. How did that experience in 2019 coming forward prepare you or help you better deal with this experience? I think that um, I've had a lot of cases that involve the media. Um, so um, I think that, um, and then, you know, with the Gabriel Fernandez case, you know, the documentary, you know, uh, I think over a hundred million people have seen it. So it, it's definitely put me out there. It's also um, um, made me feel a little bit more comfortable talking to the media. Um, I'm, I mean, I still follow the truth is just the truth. Um, I have nothing to hide. I try to be as transparent as possible. I work for you. I work for the people. Um, there's a few rules I have to have as a prosecutor. Um, but other than that, um, I try to be as honest and as transparent as I can. Um, I think that sometimes you get a little scared um, showing your emotion. Um, but I think the Gabriel case helped me because um, when I did a press conference initially and I talked a little bit about myself, um, people weren't as uh, critical of me. And I think it has a lot to do with um, this current generation 
my generation, you know, especially like in the army, I would never talk about child abuse because I, I would really feel like I'd get ridiculed. But I think this new generation, um, they're much more um, accepting of people. And so when I did come forward and I got so much support, uh, it felt made me feel better that I could be me. Um, it doesn't mean I'm not manly, you know, if, if, if I show emotion, you know, like I'm a human, um, you know, I served in the military, but I'm also a human and I do have emotion. Um, men can show emotion and doesn't mean that you're weak or something like that. And I think people sometimes think that way. Um, I'm still a very tough, you know, prosecutor, but I'm also a human. Um, and, and I think that is just the type of person I am. and I'm not going to change that. Um, so I think that part does help that they, people weren't as critical of me and, and made me feel like, Hey, I can be myself and that, and, and it's okay. Um, it also gave me contacts, you know, that's why I said I have responsibilities because I have so many contacts uh, within the media that other people don't have that I think that part of it is it's, it, I have a responsibility if, if I see something wrong happening to try to come forward. Um, but, but yeah, I, I owe a lot to this generation because um, it's, it's much, been much more therapeutic for me to talk about things that have happened to me and not be people not be as critical uh, of me, um, um, especially because I'm a prosecutor. Yeah, I mean, just this week I posted on socials the idea how vulnerability is both empowering and exhausting because it takes so much for me to open up to people and to share my feelings with people and to recognize you know, my anxiety and my fears and to acknowledge those that by the time I get to the point of being vulnerable and being open, I'm exhausted. But it feels good. It feels good as it's happening. But then as uh, as as you get that release of vulnerability and that empowerment, you're left with wow, that was that was ex- that was exhausting, man. And it's I like therapy. It it is it it is it is right. totally like therapy. Yeah, it is empowering though, and um, you know it's scary to open yourself up though, especially because of social media. You know, people can be mean, uh, and there's still a lot of bullying. Um, you know, and so it is scary, but. I think that I was happy because if I can help a child, if, if, if I could tell children or, or, or victims of abuse or survivors, hey, you can come forward, you could talk about what happened to you, don't need to be ashamed. Um, and I think it's empowered more people to do that. And I think that's a good thing. And even within the DA's office, so many prosecutors are so tough, you know, they don't want to show any of their emotion. But I think more prosecutors now are coming forward and, you know, um, trying to do what they believe is right. Um, uh, cause I've told people I don't work for George Gascon. I work for the County and because I have civil service protection. So I work for the people, uh, of the County, uh, George Gascon is the politician. Um, you know, politicians come and go, but, but we're civil servants, you know, we're not going anywhere. Um, so, um, I hope that helps people too, but, at first, it was very scary, uh, especially just because of the generation I grew up in. Um, um, but yes, it's helped me a lot now to be able to show emotion and um, be myself. And I, I, I feel that I'm not going to get ridiculed for it. So, you know, I, I've you know, come out a little bit more. I, I now have, you know, a Twitter and a 
and uh, uh, IG. I just did it in January. I never had yeah. that. And oh, I have yeah. like a Facebook page and, um, you know, so I'm coming out a little bit more doing things. How's that um, all going? It's good. You know, um, uh, I think after they called me unfit and delusional, I felt like I had to like fight back and, and say, look, I have a really good history of being a good DA. You know, here's that. Um, also, I didn't want to do it when the trials of Gabriel Fernandez came out because I felt like, you know, that that case was really about Gabriel. It wasn't about me. You know, it, it, I was just lucky enough to be able to be the prosecutor on that case. And so I, I felt uncomfortable. There was so much media attention. I, I didn't, I just felt uncomfortable. Like, but now, you know, I'm fighting for me. And so it's like, I feel like, okay, you know, it's like, uh, now I'll come out a little bit more. Uh, like, you know, this is about me now. Um, and so um, I feel more comfortable doing a lot of that social media stuff that I didn't want to do a couple of years ago. Yes, it's only 2021 and Gascon has only been in office for a couple of months now, but has anybody approached you or have you kicked around the idea of in a few years, maybe you run? So that's a good question. Um, some media outlets have asked me that. Um, I think as of right now, um, I'm just going to fight for the victims and 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 for what's right. Um, I like being a child abuse prosecutor. Like I like my job, and so I'm. I want my job back. Basically, I like fighting for kids. Um, I enjoy doing that. I think as a DA, I couldn't be able to do trials, which would be really difficult for me. Um, the second thing is, um, politicians and politics is dirty and, and it, it's, I think you get involved in that and it, it can make you dirty. And so, um, if enough people asked me to do it and I believed it was the right thing to do, and I thought I can actually help people, um, yeah, I would consider it. Um, but I wouldn't stay for long because I think that's what gets you dirty is, is you get, there's too much involved in that. Um, but it would be, I would miss being a trial attorney or a prosecutor, which is what I, I like doing. Um, but, but I have had people have asked me, um, and we're at a situation now where I, I feel that, you know, bad things could happen. And so it's definitely, it's definitely something I've thought about and talked to my wife about a little bit. Uh, I would consider it if enough people asked me to do it. I've posted in the show notes links to Hatami's social media, Signal articles on the case, as well as a letter written by Hatami published in The Signal. It has been busy on Capitol Hill, and Santa Clarita Republican Mike Garcia has been in the middle of it. On Thursday, the House voted to remove Georgia Republican Marjorie Taylor Greene from her committees, and Garcia's been mentioned in a group of Republicans who could be next on Democrats' list. I think it's been a, a, a dramatic and uh, tumultuous couple weeks. Uh, I think, honestly, those last six weeks has been um, uh, something that's been difficult to navigate for, for all of us, for all Americans. I think most Americans are tired of the drama and they're looking forward to Congress uh, getting back to work. Um, the, the reality, though, is yesterday's uh, actions were an overreach by the Democrats to strip a, a member who's sitting in Congress of their committees uh, based on comments that they made before they were even in office. And in some cases, it was comments that she made before she was even running for office. So I think I think that is, uh, A, a very dangerous precedent to set um, uh, for either party. Uh, and it is truly unprecedented in the, in the you know, 200 years of, of us doing this. 
that has never happened. A majority ha a party has never taken action to strip someone of their committees based on actions before they were even office, um, which is which is uh, astounding. So it's a very dangerous ground that we're, we're treading on, obviously. And uh, so uh, I, I'm personally looking forward to, to move beyond uh, all of the drama, all of the uh, the infighting and partisanship and actually get back to meaningful uh, legislative work here ASAP for the people. How concerned are you that maybe you're next? Well, look, I, you know, I don't underestimate uh, the measures that a lot of these folks on the left are going to take at this point. Uh, they, they've demonstrated an ability to pull all the levers and a, and a lack of discretion to do so as well. So uh, I do think we're all vulnerable. And I think uh, as conservative Republicans, we need to behave as if we are vulnerable and we need to continue to fight and, and do what's right for the people. Uh, but I do believe that the, the middle 80% of the population on both sides of the aisle, I think the average citizen and the average voter are just tired of it. They're tired of the nonsense. Uh, they're tired of, uh, of folks uh, calling uh, someone like me who had nearly 20 years of experience as a naval aviator in combat operation who served his country in Annapolis grad uh, being called a traitor and a seditionist for, for just really uh, arbitrary reasons. Um, uh, the, uh, the average American is seeing through this uh, this this mudslinging that the left is 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 imparting on us, and uh, you know I've been accused of being a QAnon supporter, and I, I don't know even what what QAnon is, uh, Aaron. I don't you know I I took a vote to condemn QAnon last year, and and now there's commercials running in, on LA media markets talking about how I'm a QAnon supporter. So they've they've shown that they're willing to lie. They're 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 making things up. Um, it is uh, it's libel. It's slander. It's all sorts of things. And my my goal and my focus right now is to rise above these things and 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 continue to demonstrate uh, why I belong in this office and why the folks of the 25th district uh, deserve representation. That is not only no drama, but also experienced uh, experienced uh, with a background in business and, and a background in service to this beautiful nation. And, I, and, and we will do that. I've got a great team and we've got a great future here in office. What's the latest to try to get more vaccinations into Southern California? Obviously the Six Flags vaccination site, different reports. It's gone smoothly for some, in and out, no problem. Others, you know, my mother-in-law, three hour wait uh, a couple yeah. of weeks ago. Uh, what is the latest uh, from your perspective on getting more vaccinations into Southern California? Yeah, and part of the problem is it's not even that we need more vaccinations. We need a better distribution system. We need more uh, funnels and, and we need to get them in, in different locations. Uh, so, so we were uh, able to get more vaccines into the state. Uh, we're looking now at why this governor and, and his, his system is not able to get those to the locations as quickly as they can. Uh, the bottom line, though, is I think this is a time where we've got to stop looking for, for the high resolution answer and just get the broadcast answer out there. Uh, it, it, just like a flu virus is available at CVS, Walgreens, Walmart, uh, this virus should be available at every single location where you would normally get a vaccine. Uh, and we need to stop targeting certain demographics at the risk of not getting the vaccines actually used, right? So. Uh, we were focused on seniors. We were focused on those who uh, had underlying conditions and were vulnerable to COVID. Uh, uh, fantastic uh, priorities, but the reality is if those folks aren't there and the vaccine is, that vaccine should be administered. And that's what uh, I've been from a legislative perspective pushing and leaning on our governor to do. Uh, we are getting more money uh, into the area. I've got uh, uh, funds out there that are coming to uh, my district as, uh, in the local area to, to help with the distribution of the vaccine. 
Um, but at, at this point, it's got to be a mentality of uh, smoke them if you got them. And if the vaccines are there local, we've got to get them into more stores and, and into, the, into uh, more uh, uh, locations. These super, these super vaccine centers are, are good, um, but they're going to lead to longer lines and crowds if we, all, if we focus them all on, on just a few locations. Where are you on this uh, new stimulus package that's moving through Congress? Look, I, I, I've been bending over backwards, helping small businesses and local constituents. Um, and, but I got to tell you, this, this package is, is a behemoth. It's another uh, effectively $2 trillion program on top of the, you know, anywhere from 6 to $8 trillion that we spent on COVID. Our nation's debt is now at $27 trillion, which is roughly eighty dollars to $85,000 per human being in the United States of, de of debt. Um, th this package is doing some good things, but it's, it's doing a lot of things that have nothing to do with COVID and it's frankly too big of a program uh, for the country right now, both in terms of, of, of affordability, but also execution wise. We're, we're proving that we're, we're not able to execute some of these programs. Um, I've been supportive of the $2,000 stimulus check. I will continue to be supportive of the $2,000 stimulus check. Uh, I've been supportive of the unemployment insurance continuing uh, through the end of March. We'll continue to do that. Uh, my office has been holding workshops for small businesses. Now we've held uh, uh, several webinars with uh, 70 small businesses in my district, walking them through the process of getting the Paycheck Protection Program, uh, the PPP money that they desperately need and deserve. Um, so, so not only have I supported these larger bills in the past, but also at the individual level and advocating for small businesses. But look, what the economy needs right now is, 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 is the relief that we've already approved, but also now to open back up. We've got to get our schools open. We've got to get our businesses back open. We've proven that we can mitigate this. We've proven that the vaccines are coming out online with a million a, a day. Uh, this, this is a point where we need to be figuring out how to open back up and allow the small businesses and the big businesses, frankly, to reinvigorate the economy and not the federal government. Tax season is upon us. You have a bill to repeal the SALT deduction caps, the state and local tax deduction caps. Yeah, so this was a, you know, a product, this, this, the SALT bill or state and local tax deduction limit is, a, is effectively a $10,000 cap on how much you can deduct on your federal tax return as a result of state and local taxes that you pay on an annual basis, right? So uh, it's a $10,000 limit. It was part of the 2017 Tax Cut and Jobs Act uh, under the Trump administration. The 2017 tax bill was a fantastic bill overall. It's what fueled this booming economy over the last four years. Uh, it's what got things going. It was a tax break for all Americans and all businesses. But it had this salt cap in there. It was it was kind of meant to be a, a bit of a middle finger to California, New York, if you will, Aaron. Uh, uh, but it's not fair to Californians. And as much as I, I supported that tax cut bill, and I love it, uh, I think it needs to be made permanent. I think we do need to remove this salt cap provision so that Californians can continue to live and survive in California. This isn't an upper class uh, issue. This isn't just something that affects the wealthy. As you know, the average Californian, especially in Southern California and the Bay Area. You know, the, the average value of a house is five, six hundred thousand dollars on the low end. So if you've got a family, a married couple who are both working and, and, and they own a, a medium sized house, uh, they will run into this tax deduction limit uh, on their taxes last year and this year easily. So this salt cap removal is a straight removal of the deduction cap. 
and it will literally uh, yield anywhere from you know two to ten thousand dollars of additional tax refund into the pockets of, of Southern California families. Forget the deduction. I, can we just cap state and local tax? I mean, <laughs> well, that's the real problem. Ten and a quarter and, and, here. It's crazy. Yeah, and, that, and this is you know this is the fight I'm fighting, and this is why I ran here. And you know I I had no interest in politics. What what my interest here in, in being in this in this position is is to make sure that our nation doesn't turn into what California has become. And, and to your point, the real issue here is that we're overtaxed in a state right now that is insolvent. And uh, they, 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 they touted this rainy day fund in California that all of a sudden when, when it's raining outside and we need that rainy day fund, it just doesn't exist anymore. And they continue to raise our taxes. Highest taxed uh, state in the nation, fifth largest GDP in the world, even though we're just a state. And we are now effectively on paper insolvent and they continue to make it more painful. People are leaving California and we've got to stop this bleeding. This salt cap removal is one way to mitigate it, but we've got to get this governor out, out of office and we've got to start getting some fiscal conservatives representing us. Congressman, thank you for the time. Appreciate it. Thank you, Aaron. Appreciate you. Take care. That does it for this week's episode of the Santa Clarita Valley Signal News Podcast. I'm your host, Aaron Bender. My social media and contact info is in the show notes. Thanks for listening. Be well, everybody. What makes Frontier Toyota so awesome? They make it so easy. They treat people right. They're straightforward. Frontier Toyota is also the proud recipient of Toyota's President's Cabinet Award, one of only 12 dealerships in the nation to win the award. It's our customers. Because at Frontier Toyota, it's about you! Come in or buy online at FrontierToyota.com. Frontier Toyota, Creekside Road in Valencia.